0: I'm Jay Miller, today on George Fox Talks, I'm joined by Ross McCullough, and we're going to be talking about God, evil, and self-creation. All right, welcome to this episode of George Fox Talks. I'm in the studio today with my colleague, Ross McCullough, an assistant professor of theology and the associate director of the George Fox Honors Program, which I have the privilege of teaching in him with. And Ross has a new book out. It's called Freedom and Sin, Evil in a World Created by God. And we're going to be diving into this today. And I wanted to start with just Ross's part of Ross's first paragraph of the book here um, as a way of kicking off our conversation about God and God's relationship to evil in the world. So Ross starts by quoting Romans eleven thirty six, For from him and through him and to him are all things. If God is the creator of all that is, then God is the creator also of our acts. Indeed, God is the creator even of causing our acts. God's creative activity is not alongside our own, as if we too were co-creators in what we bring about. God brings about our bringing about. I love that first paragraph. and But as I was thinking about it, I was thinking about how it may not necessarily be the way we're accustomed to thinking or even talking about God, um, and that's because you're working out of a very particular kind of philosophical theological tradition. And so, um, Ross, I was wondering to start if you could just tell us a little bit about the field of philosophical theology that you work in and why you know how how it's maybe different than how we might normally think or talk about God.
1: Yeah. Um, so, philosophical theology broadly is the Uh, it's somewhat amorphous, but it's the use of philosophical concepts and tools in the study of theology. Uh, And so there's as many kinds of philosophical theology as there are philosophies and theologies in a sense. Um, And not not all theologians are philosophical theologians, but those that rely more on these philosophical concepts and tools are. Um, And again, there, there's a kind of spectrum uh, in terms of how philosophical you want your theology to be. Um, and even even my own my own work, I'm I'm somewhat ambivalent about the the philosophy side. But the tradition of philosophical theology that I've, I'm working out of is um, what's called Christian Platonism, mm-hmm. broadly speaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's uh, that's a particular tradition, but it's also by far the most common tradition within Christianity, um, and really within Western monotheism. There's also a a kind of Islamic Platonism, a Jewish Platonism. Um, which share many assumptions. The the Christian, Christian Platonism is basically the default set of assumptions of Christian theologians until arguably the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, so Protestants, Catholics, Orthodox, they're all working in this broad tradition. Um, and that's part of the reason I work in it is because I take that, that tradition to have some, some force, some authority over me. Um, and so there are other more modern versions of philosophical theology, but I, uh, but I mostly stay out of those.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm wondering, this, this is holding off on the Christian Platonism a little bit, which I'd like to hear more about, but is the term philosophical theology itself a little bit reparative in the sense of like, certainly if you look at the history of theology, like it's very philosophical for most of history. So is the fact that like here in the early 20th century, we have a field called philosophical theology trying to recuperate a more philosophical approach that's sometimes lost?
1: Um. Maybe I think that's that's one way to look at it. I think you have uh, you you always have a tradition that's somewhat skeptical of the use of philosophy in theology. Sure, um, like you could talk about biblical theology would be, I guess, one. Yeah, biblical theology. So that's a that's a kind of twentieth century version. But you know, there's roots in the Reformation. There's debates among the reformers about how philosophical to be, and mm-hmm. it's connected to this idea that sure. you know, philosophy is is in some way thinking without God thinking just by using our natural reason. And if you don't think that we can get very far without God, then you're gonna be suspicious of any conclusions that the philosophers come to, and so also suspicious of using them in theology. You want the Bible and revelation in charge, so why do you need philosophy? That's always There's always that kind of skepticism there. Um, often it runs with a kind of anti-intellectualism, as you could understand. Um, but yes, on the other hand, you have, you know, in practice, all theologies involve some kind of philosophical positions. So the idea with philosophical theology is to, to be most responsible about that, about your use of philosophy. You should be more explicit that these are the kinds of philosophical positions I'm taking. These are the debates where that might make a difference. Sure. So let's get explicit here. Um, we'll put the explicit tag on this episode. Um T- you
0: so tell us about the Christian Platonist tradition that you find yourself working in and why it's compelling for
1: you as a theologian. Yeah, so Christian Platonism broadly um, inherits this um, set of philosophical commitments from Platonism, which is which is already a kind of uh, monotheism. So mm-hmm. it already has yeah. a lot of these positions about God and um, creation, uh, the afterlife, but. Uh, But some of them are not Christian positions. So the Christian Platonists take over these positions from not just from Plato, but from a whole uh, series of Greek, especially, but and also Roman thinkers. Um, Really, they're getting a lot of it out of Neoplatonism, which is a is a later version Mm -hmm. of Platonism. Um, But it's very influential within Christianity, and they adapt some of these uh, many of these concepts to the To the biblical message, to the biblical witness, and they use it to to help unpack. and And in in a way, I mean, part of the reason it's so attractive, both throughout the tradition and to me, is that the Platonism is is already there by the time of the New Testament. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Prologue to John's Gospel uh, is about the Word, the Logos, but that's a term that that already has heavy. Um, Christian Platonist uh, overtones elements in it, so you're you're already getting these things even within Revelation itself. So then, when we unpack Revelation, it's very natural in the early church, and then the medieval church, and then the Reformation until now to continue to use those concepts. Um, so that's that's part of the attraction um, is that it it uh, there's a kind of authority to it because it's it's the it's like the it's the sort of soil in which Christianity grew up, sure. if you want to put it yeah. that way. Um, There's one way of understanding that where it's like it's just a coincidence or it's just happenstance. I think that's wrong. I think these things are providential, Mm. and God arranged for his son to come into a world that intellectually, the milieu intellectually, was Platonist um, as it was unpacked. So I think that gives us a a kind of um, bias towards the Christian Platonist reading, Um, that and the fact that all these great thinkers from – from, the, from Augustine to Aquinas to Calvin. All these people are broadly Christian Platonist.
0: Yeah, and I guess we'll get into what it means, the kind of certain kind of features of Christian. You talked about it as a kind of monotheism, but we'll get more into what's, what's distinctive about it as we talk. But for this question you're getting at in the book of evil in a world created by God, the kind of um, the fact that evil... Um, is present in the world, even though God is, or or evil comes about in the world, even though God is the cause of the world. Um, why is, how does Christian Platonism, what kind of resources does it provide for thinking through those problems of God and evil?
1: Yeah, yeah. So this really is getting getting towards the heart of the book. So um, Christ, Christian Platonism uh, wants to hold on very strongly to this idea that God is the cause of everything. Mm-hmm. And that that's um, reflected in that first paragraph that you read. But you also have evil. And so the solution um, from, from the Neoplatonist tradition, and you see it in Athanasius and Augustine, so you see it already in, in the patristic early church theology, is that evil is not a thing. Right. So God is the cause of everything, but it's everything, every positive ontological, sort of everything that has being, and this is this can get very obscure, but the idea is is essentially that evil is a kind of defect or a lack, and so God causes everything, but He doesn't cause evil because evil's not a thing, and what that gives you is a very strong sense of God's um, providential supremacy mm-hmm. over the whole world, and also without without implying that God is responsible for evil. That's the kind of broad hope. But there's a lot of open questions there of how to make it work. And this the book is essentially trying to answer those open questions within that broad frame. I mean, that, that broad frame is already well-established by Augustine, so by, right. by about 400 or 430 AD. Um, and so the, the subsequent 1,500 years, there's been a lot of fights sort of trying to work out the rest of the details. Right,
0: yeah. And so you're in some ways trying to both retrieve this sort of tradition and make a restatement of it mm-hmm. that's compelling today in light of these kind of compelling debates. And the way you restate that is um, this idea of indeterminist compatibilism. So can you unpack that kind of term for us? What, is, what does that mean um, in relationship to thinking about god's sovereignty god is the cause of all things but our ability to
1: act in evil ways
0: nonetheless
1: yeah so the indeterminist side is in some ways the most straightforward it just means that god doesn't determine or or predetermine everything in the world in history so there Mm -hmm. are some things that god wills god wants to happen that don't happen um and the obvious examples would be, for instance, the salvation of all human beings. It says in Scripture very clearly God wants all men to be saved, but um, it also seems like not all people are saved. Uh, and so that was something that God wills, but God doesn't determine everything. So there are some things that are undetermined in the in history. That's the indeterminism part. Yeah, compatibilism is a is a term of art that comes out of philosophy, um, and. Compatibilism refers to the idea that our free choices are compatible with being determined. So God, and there's mm. different kinds of compatibilism. Some people say, you know, your if your neurochemistry causes you to do something, that's still a free choice. So that would be a compatibilism between your biology or your neurochemistry and your free will. Mm-hmm. It's not the view, so compatibilism is saying, those are still free choices, mm-hmm. even though they're determined. Now this my kind of compatibilism is theological compatibilism meaning when god determines your choices they are still free choices so god brings about your bringing about yeah. as i say Yeah. but that doesn't make your bringing about that thing unfree because it's a compatibilism now it's an indeterminist compatibilism so so i'm saying this is it's slightly counterintuitive because most people who are compatibilists are determinists they say yeah god determines everything but we're still free because mm-hmm. com- our freedom is compatible with being determined. But my view, and actually the view of, I think of Augustine and um, possibly Aquinas, many of the major figures in the tradition, is that both that God can make us choose freely, but also that God doesn't always make us choose freely. There are some choices that are left open to us to do against God's will, for instance, so that's the that's the basic view. Yeah. Why would Slightly choices here? Here's, here's So here's a counter argument. So yeah. Or a
0: question that arises then is why why give us that ability to
1: make a bad choice? Um, right. Is kind of the question that arises. Yeah. Because it's not it's not freedom, right? That's the whole point of the compatibilism. It's not so that we can be free, but this gets into the to the later sections of the book. This is there's something. In the neighborhood of freedom, in the vicinity of freedom, mm-hmm. like freedom mm-hmm. that can't be determined, and that's and it's it's trying to pin that down. Mm. That is the is the purpose of the book. I call it a kind of self createdness or a self creation. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, you know the reason you yeah the re, the reason you might want something like this is because God God is perfectly free and can't do evil. And so it seems like our freedom, if it fully imitates God's freedom, also doesn't require an ability to do evil on mm-hmm, our part. Mm-hmm. And in fact, if you look at the people who are most God-like, above all, Christ in his human nature, he's, his humanity is most God-like, but his human will is not able to sin. And it's perfectly free. So that, so you have these, this set of claims in the Christian tradition very strong, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. affirming that freedom doesn't require an ability to sin. On the other hand, you have this other set of claims which comes out of theodicy, Mm -hmm. explaining evil in the world. And there you have this claim, well, why is there evil? That's because human beings were free and we were able to disobey God. That's a different understanding of freedom than the first one, right? The first understanding of freedom is compatibilist. Right. And that's that's the definition of freedom I end up going with. But there's this other sense of freedom which does important work for Christian theology, namely the work of explaining why there's evil in the world. And it's identifying that other that other side of things, which I don't want to call freedom. I want to call self-createdness or self-creation. Mm-hmm. But I think Christians need, yeah. because otherwise, you know, you put God behind, make God responsible for all sorts of evil in the world.
0: And it also switches from that kind of more, the emphasis on the origin of evil in our freedom to make choices or our freedom to act— um as opposed to our inability to um align with God's will um that position is kind of more that's kind of like a free will position is that broadly right that would be kind of like an armenian position i'm wondering if we could kind of position what you're talking about in terms of what other kind of views on this problem people might take so would that be yeah. more of an armenian or a free yeah. will position
1: yeah so this second Liber, uh, you call it libertarian libertarian yeah. is the word in the in the philosophical so this is literature. what ron paul thinks it's not that kind of yeah it's just like the technical word in the philosophical literature um where a libertarian is a, is somebody who's not a compatibilist, so who thinks okay. that our freedom can't be determined, yeah. and who thinks that we are free, that we have that sort of freedom. Um, so, yeah, that, the philosoph- philosophers would call it libertarian freedom. This this freedom from determination, mm-hmm. not to be determined by God. Mm-hmm. Uh, Classically, yes. In the in the Reformed tradition, broadly speaking, it's associated with the Armenians as against like five-point Calvinists or something. Yeah. There's the same set of debates after the Reformation pop up in the Catholic world where it's a debate between Dominicans and Jesuits primarily, in the Lutheran world between the so-called Philippists and the nazio lutherans and then in the Reformed world with this Armenian stuff. Yeah. And these guys are all kind of talking to each other, so they're borrowing arguments and things. But it's the same kinds of camps. And so, yes, it's... Uh, it's a question of basically, th- that's in my terminology, that's a question about determinism. Does God determine or predetermine everything that happens? And one side, the kind of stricter Calvinist side, says yes. Um, the Thomists, the Dominicans in the Catholic world say yes. And then the other side, which so is God's the side of-
0: determining evil, or like God, would they, would they say that God's causing evil?
1: Well, they might still say, following this Augustinian line, that evil's not a thing. So there's no- yeah. nothing there for God to cause. Yeah. But it is. But they would say that, given God's decisions, evil inevitably results. Mm-hmm. God decides how the world's going to mm-hmm. be. Yeah. Before anything. Evil's ever kind happens. of a fait accompli. Yeah. And whatever God decides, including all the evil, all the sin, all the people going to hell, that's all baked in from the beginning, prior to any you know prior even to our existence mm-hmm. the existence of anything in creation mm-hmm. that's the one view and then the other view the armenian view the more indeterminist view which i end up because i'm an indeterminist this is where i end up is that that's not the case god has a plan for creation that doesn't involve sin um and therefore it doesn't involve damnation but then the actual creation goes wrong in some way because mm-hmm. of our choices right so is it fair to say that between something like
0: free will and predestination that your position which you kind of contend is this kind of very long standing position within Christianity is it a sort of middle way or is that the wrong way of construing it um you're you're wanting to be able to hold both claims about god's um sovereignty and also
1: you know um, God being against sin. Yeah, but I think, I think to be fair, my critics among the, the more Calvinist or predestination side, if you want to call it that, would say that on the decisive questions, I'm on the more free will Arminian side, sure. if you want yeah. to put it that yeah. way. But from that side, I'm trying to take as much of the other side's goods as I can. I'm trying to sort of plunder their intellectual resources.
0: Yeah, and you're trying to move us away. I think, again you're also trying to move us away in this idea that we can, God gives us a choice and we choose badly. You're trying to move that away from thinking about freedom to thinking about self-creation is also, another kind of intervention right. yeah. that and we'll get to.
1: Alongside that, a uh, moving away from thinking about God as a kind of partner with us. So one of the, one of the classical images is that, you know, we're pulling a boat and God's pulling the boat and we're pulling the boat together and together we can kind of do it. We both mm-hmm. have sort of ropes. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not, that makes God too much like us. It's an anthropomorphic view of God. God's sort of like the biggest thing in the universe. Yes, yeah. Um, and that's not a good view of God on my account. So what you need instead is God is underlying everything we do. So we are pulling the boat. There's no God next to us pulling the boat, but God in some sense is sustaining and, and creating and causing everything about that boat and the rope and, the, and us and our pulling the rope. Mm -hmm. So the whole thing God is sort of underlying as creator. So
0: can we take this model um, of indeterminist compatibilism? the way we are given – we're sort of given the opportunity to do good and we don't do that – in this process of self-creation, can you flesh that out in terms of what you brought up earlier, questions of salvation and kind of what the spectrum can look like in terms of beatitude. So seeing God in the afterlife, becoming one with God, salvation versus falling away from God, damnation. Um, How does this work in that kind of framework? Yeah. So um... what's a beatified person doing or experiencing that someone, you know, who's going away from God or experiencing damnation isn't doing?
1: Uh, yeah. So a uh, you mean somebody who's who's actually beatified, not on the way to being beatified? Sure. Yeah. And maybe you should clarify that. Just, what do you yeah. mean by beatitude? So beatitude would be um, what, like a popular way of saying it might be like being in heaven, going to heaven. Yeah. Uh, the slightly more robust theological way would be to say having the beatific vision. That is right. your yeah your mind is so um, full of God that you in some sense see nothing else or you, you see everything else in the, in the world through God, through the vision of God. So you have this, this direct unmediated mm. vision of God's essence, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, that's, that's the end of, end of the Christian life, right? That's the goal. And you're participating in the Trinity in that way. And when you're in that state, you can no longer sin. You're not less free, this is the compatibilism. You're fully, you're actually more free than you are now because you can more fully do things. You can more fully act. Your acts aren't defective mm-hmm. in the way that our acts are defective, mm-hmm. and that also means they're so undefective that they're not even defectable. They can't even go wrong. Um, that's the beatific state, um, and your acts are are perfect in this way, perfectly free because they are confirmed by grace, both the grace of God. Moving us to act, it's mm-hmm. called God as an efficient cause, but right. also the grace of God giving Himself this vision of Him of Himself, so that we see our good, our happiness, so fully wrapped up in God that we can't reject it. Mm-hmm. Everything we might choose instead of God is already there and better. Mm-hmm. So there's no there's no saying no to that. We can't choose something else. There is nothing else. It's it, we see we finally see that every good sort of like a facet of goodness that's reflected in the universe is all there in God fully. Mm-hmm. And so there's no possibility of choosing one of the little facets because the perfection is is right before us. Mm-hmm. So in that sense we're perfectly free and we're we're unable to sin. So we've lost the indeterminism side of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a you know that's the traditional Christian claim. People don't want to think, you know, there's obviously good reason to to want to avoid the ability to sin in the afterlife because then we're just gonna get these cycles, right? Where it's like you're saved, but then you fall again and then you get saved again. Mm-hmm. That's not the Christian picture. Um so this is all consonant with that, with that kind of a view. Mm-hmm. We have an indeterminism now, but it's temporary. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the question is so why do we need it? Well we need it because we need to be self created in the afterlife. Those the beat the saints in the afterlife, those beatified they had the ability to say no to God and they didn't. And that that means that they had a kind of hand in their own creation, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And that endures in the afterlife. They continue to be self-created in the afterlife because they were able to say no, but they said yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: And it's exactly in the other direction, you know, in some ways what we think of as kind of again, like maybe popularly like going to hell or being damned and more kind of technically as sort of moving in the opposite direction from God. You talk about annihilationism is kind of how yeah. you think about that. Could you talk like, what what is that set of kind of choices or that experience is like, it's
1: essentially, is it right to pair the idea of self-creation with self-destruction? Yeah, exactly, okay, yeah. that's exactly it. So, you know, just like God gives you the ability to say yes to his movement, his grace in your life. Um, to create yourself but he also gives you the possibility to say no he moves you to create yourself but he allows you to resist that and if you resist that you're you're essentially destroying yourself um you're not you're not realizing who you're supposed to be and this gets back again to this idea of evil as a privation or a defect right. not a positive thing you aren't making yourself into something different you're actually just destroying yourself because you don't have the you don't have the ability, independent of God, to make yourself into anything. Mm-hmm. God is making you into something, but you can choose not to be made, mm-hmm. and that's what damnation is is choosing not to be made. And so, um, my view of damnation is is one in which there's not God doesn't then like respond by punishing you or something. The, the sin is the punishment. You create who you're going to be. And if Mm -hmm. you create this defective version, you know, you sort of destroy the thing that God wants to make Mm -hmm. of you, then you suffer that in hell. That's what hell is, is suffering those, the consequences of those choices. Mm -hmm. Um, So it is yeah, there's, there's nuances. There's more nuances to that view, but that's the, that's the basic.
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I can throw a nuance at you because I think some people coming from this Christian Platonist tradition where you're talking about like, you know, God is the source of all things. God is in all things. Like Mm -hmm. you're saying, God is not just initiating all things, but God's drawing all things. Some people would take that in the direction of kind of a more of a universal salvation. Kind of that, like you said, that like God's will is that all will be saved. So how could that will kind of be defeated? So I'm curious in the book, you kind of articulate more of the kind of annihilationist view, but I'm curious how you'd position yourself or think about something like universal salvation, you know, in, in this kind of departing from your, you know, the concepts in your book a little bit.
1: Yeah. Um, I think you, you can have a, you can have a universal salvation position that's, that's consistent with what I say in the book. And and I don't really argue against it. I think, um, the, the difficulties are obviously. There is a question. There is just a scriptural question, right? What did God in fact do? What kind of choices did God mm. in fact give us?
0: You are a biblical theologian. Well, of course. I mean, I am a theologian. <laughs> I would say a yeah, philosophical, yeah, but still yeah. a theologian. So you are still yeah. ultimately you are accountable to the Bible. You do right? draw a
1: lost scripture in the book. Um, and you mentioned that I open with that quote from that the passage from Romans, the verse, and the, right. the closing. The second half of the verse is the closing. The closing um, passage of the book. Uh, the so the the really the debate is whether. If God gives us these choices, which have such great moment, such great import, right. how, how broad a scope does he allow them to be? Does he allow us ultimately to, to totally destroy ourselves? Everybody agrees mm-hmm. that he, or everybody in this line agrees that he gives us some control over how we are made. The universalists want to say, yeah, that's true. And God, you know, the best universalists will say, God doesn't make us do sins in this world. God doesn't bring about the Holocaust or anything. He doesn't want us to do that, and we still do it. But the, but they'll say, ultimately, God only gives some scope to those choices. So you can cr- kind of create yourself to some degree, but... In the end, God's going to get his way, and you're going to be made into the thing you're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. So there's no kind of ultimate scope to that self-creation. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, okay. And in that sense, the sort of domain of it is severely restricted. So mm-hmm. you get some control over kind of like how you get to the destination, but you don't get a control over the destination. Yeah. But if you take the self-creation stuff seriously, then it seems like at least possible that God might want to actually give us control over our destination too if he, if that makes metaphysical sense and i and, you know the point of the book is is to show that it does make metaphysical sense so it's at least an option for god that god could do that and then you look at scripture and revelation and say well what did god choose god could have done either of those things and you know my reading of scripture is that it's more consonant with a view in which there is hell so there are people who destroy themselves essentially so can we
0: spend a little more time you talked about self creation there a little bit um, can we unpack that a little bit in terms of we talked about God is efficient cause. We've talked about God as final cause. Yeah. Can you talk about how self-creation relates to something you talk about in the book as God, as exemplary cause?
1: Yeah. So this is, um, this goes back to the Christian Platonism. On, on, Christ, on the, the Neoplatonist view, God is a threefold cause of the universe or sort of things. Efficient cause, which is sort of what we understand by causality now, like the, the billiard ball hits the other billiard ball and it mm-hmm. goes off. Um, final cause, which is something that causes by drawing you, you, it, you desire the thing and it it brings about your actions because you desire it. That's the final cause. Um, so like you could think of a, you know, the final cause may have no knowledge or interaction with you directly in an efficient way, but it just, you just desire it. Um, so the, the, the person you have a crush on might have no idea of your existence but your crush on them your desire for them makes you do all sorts of things that's mm-hmm. a final cause but then there's this third kind of cause which is an exemplary cause and this is this is the idea that god is the in a in a united and all surpassing way he is the the goodness of everything in the world so the exemplum the the sort of model or type of all goodness is God. And everything in the world is just little pieces, little imitations or participations in the divine goodness. So every good thing is a kind of um, an icon or a mirror of the divine goodness. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason it's relevant here, and it's a big issue with when you're talking about freedom, is that that also means that our freedom is an imitation of or participation in God's freedom. And this is where the problems I was mentioning earlier where... Mm. God's freedom doesn't involve an ability to do sin. So our freedom as, a, as an imitation of or participation in God's freedom doesn't essentially involve that either. It doesn't seem like. So then you have this problem. What, what is it that allows us to do evil that God gives us at our creation? There's something that God gives us. And if that thing is good, it has to be an imitation of God in some way. Mm-hmm. But if it's an imitation of God who can't do evil, how could it be that it gives us the ability to do evil? That's the problem. If you see, mm-hmm. what, if you see, kind of how I'm yeah, setting yeah. the terms, and so that's the self creation stuff is designed, and it, it gets kind of technical. But the the point of self creation or self createdness is that it can it can solve that problem. There can be a kind of imitation of God's uncreatedness in our self createdness, and God's uncreatedness doesn't involve an ability to evil to do evil, but our self createdness does. Mm-hmm.
0: And I I want to just one more. We've talked about this a little bit. Can you can you just underscore one more time what the difference is between thinking of humans as self creators versus thinking of humans as free, or is the contrast yeah. between freedom and self creation?
1: Yeah. Um, so again, the the basic difference is as I'm using the term, um, and this is I'm I'm making this distinction myself. So the, yeah. the terms as I'm using them are somewhat terms of art. Self creation, I should say the. The kind of genealogy of the term it comes out of this kind of indeterminist line uh, about freedom that goes back to through like the German idealists so mm-hmm. so um, Fichte and Hegel and yeah um, and there they talk about freedom in terms of self creation and there for them it's a kind of explanation of what freedom is mm-hmm. but that that view has problems these theological problems of of how to fit with this kind of Christian Platonism of God's exemp- exemplary freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, And so I'm making a distinction between those two. And I want to keep freedom in this more, freedom is a kind of perfection that we have that imitates God's perfect freedom, but doesn't involve an ability to do evil. It's just our ability to, in some sense, um, act on the goodness that is ourselves, to act out our own goodness. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of thing that's made more perfect the more holy we are and the less we are able to sin. Mm -hmm. So the saints fully act themselves out, enact themselves in a certain way. Um, And that's what it means for them to be perfectly free, um, to do that as rational creatures, as agents. Um, And then self-creation is this other sense of something, well, even if you can do that fully, if you can't have said no to that, then there's something that isn't quite, that isn't totally Mm godlike about you. The Mm -hmm. ability to have said no to that, um, to, to have destroyed yourself, to have had the possibility of destroying yourself, but to not take that possibility. Mm-hmm. There's some godlike scenario. There's something mm-hmm. good about that. And so self-creation is to try to give an account of that different kind of good. You also talk about hard oneness in the book, the idea that
0: our yeah. beatitude perhaps in the kind of final kind of accounting of things, there's a hard oneness to our kind of growth yeah. that... Um, the kind of self creation model kind of gets. It's very interesting to me because I think a lot of times Christians today might push back against certain, push back or participate in like certain aspects of the broader culture where they're like critiquing, like, oh, it's all about autonomous individualism today. Um, And, or kind of a Promethean, you know, I am my own, you know, I'm kind of making my own reality. And, what's compelling you got self-creation is kind of a recognition of like, Oh, there's some truth to that. You know, yeah. there's some truth to the fact that we are, um, realizing ourselves by our own acts, self actualizing, if you will. I don't know if that's that, yep. but with this Christian, Christian Platonist model, that's overlaid onto this kind of cosmology, um, that gives that more direction than just being, um, a free floating actor, you know,
1: yeah. Yeah, that's am I right. right in perceiving that? Yeah. yeah, and also right. It's not just we're, yeah. We're not like a free floating actor in some in our own sort of drama, independent of God. God is still the the, the storyteller, right? God is still the mm-hmm. creator of everything in a in a robust sense. Um, but yes, I think the the standard Christian Platonist response to this tradition of of autonomy and um, self self actualization self createdness is to be very suspicious of it because it doesn't really fit and it seems like pride it seems like sin mm-hmm. to our, to assert ourselves in that way and a lot of it is but um, I think there are better aspects of it and so that there is that that whole kind of German idealist tr- tradition the kind of Hegelianism here and it's in these Russian figures too, like Soloviev and Bulgakov and then contemporary figures who pick that up. That there's some real there's some real benefit to that. Um and it it's deeply shapes our modern imaginations. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of a romantic idea, ro- like romantic in the sense of romanticist yes, idea. Yes, yeah. Like you're the kind of hero of your own story and all these sorts of things. Um, and that's, that's both worrisome and has some real attraction to well, it. Well, and it
0: resonates with your account of sin, too, because it's not just something that's coming out of the blue, but you can see the kind of the worst forms, perhaps, of that kind of autonomous individualism um, or maybe like the liberal subject. However, you yeah. kind of want to talk about that liberalism in this kind of broad sense, you know, you can see them as um, as in relationship to this idea of self-creation in God, but diminishments of that you know, in the sense that sin is also a diminishment of the capacity we have to choose the good.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the basic mistake of that tradition is to think of God as another thing in the world, in a sense, and therefore as something that impinges upon us, upon our freedom. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So the the tradition is healthy. Competitive in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Right. They have a competitive view of God and us. And so if you have a competitive view of God and us, then for me to be autonomous means that I can't be following God's law. God's law, autonomos is self law, right? Law from the self. God's following God's law would be heteronomous, God for f- law from another. And mm-hmm. so therefore anything that would come from God would would threaten my autonomy. Mm-hmm. Whereas of course so that's the problematic side of it. You know, for a better Christian understanding, you have to see how God doesn't stand alongside you or above you in quite that way. He's sort of within you, underneath you. Augustine's famous phrase that God is more interior to me than I am to myself. Right. So everything that you have, every every good thing springs from God first and then from you. That's what it is to be a creature. And so once you reinsert the self-creation stuff in that model, then it sort of neutralizes the problems. That's Mm -hmm. the hope of the book. Yeah.
0: Um, I think another thing that I really took away from your book was, again, just kind of shifting the way we sometimes think about... Um, acting rightly and acting wrongly. And I wanted to read a passage that I found really resonant and they just kind of hear your thoughts on it because you, you say, you know, that you're shifting out of me, the philosophical and the practical here. You say, um, we do not love ourselves too much, but only God too little and neighbors too little and ultimately ourselves too little. There may be an excess to the phenomenal character of our disordered loves since it seems to us that we have exalted these objects of our affection, but this seeming is born not from the exaltation of our idol, but from the degradation of all else, which indeed finally is the degradation also of what we idolized. We do not in so doing go beyond or outside what God moves us to, but fail to attain to the fullness of God's will for us. Part of my point here is practical, even existential. Sin is an odd mixture—a nothingness that is not inert but catching. We have to capture both its hollowness and its dangers. Um, and so, yeah, I think capturing that hollowness and the danger of sin, as opposed to its strength, if you will, you're kind of you know, at one point you talk about the futility of sin. Is I think just a really important way of reframing sometimes the way we can think about, you know. We think about sin like as a battle, as a contest, and, and you know it's not necessarily always wrong. But you're reframing that in a certain way.
1: Yeah, that's right. And this is connected to the idea that sin is a kind of defection or self destruction, almost in a way. So one one example, one practical example you can think of here is the is the arrogant or proud person, or the sort of all conquering person, um, man, usually in his ambition. Who's sort of like sh- surely that philosophical is like, theologians? Surely, <laughs> surely, surely that is the great man, right? Surely that person has sort of realized himself and put his stamp on things. What you have to be able to see is the fundamental that actually that's not that person doesn't exist more than you or better than you. Uh, that's actually a defection. There actually a, there's a kind of hollowness there. Mm-hmm. There's a lack of power, a lack of happiness to that person's life, even though it, to all. Earthly, worldly eyes. That person seems happy, seems powerful, seems like they have what it, what it, uh, what you know, a, a kind of godlike existence. They're called gods with little g's. But the mm. whole, the whole point of Christianity is to reframe that, that. That's not what it is to be godlike, right? That's not what it, when we are made gods like God. It's not to be like that. And so that kind of striving, which feels like a striving to be more, is actually a striving to be less, to mm-hmm. be less than yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, And so this, again, this is a kind of very uh, traditional Christian Platonist model. Probably the best and most influential uh, thinking through of this is Boethius, the Consolation of Philosophy, where he just goes through and he shows, you know, you think these people are good, you think these people are happy, you think these people are wise or powerful, and he just shows the vanity of all of it and how it's actually just emptiness. And so it's taking that seriously um, in our own lives. That's, That's the kind of like shift that you have to make.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you for exploring that so richly in this book. And thank you for coming on the podcast today, Ross. Thank you, Jay. This video podcast is a production of George Fox Digital. To find more material like this, you can subscribe to George Fox Talks on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Our team really appreciates your feedback in the form of likes, comments, and reviews. And we'd really love to hear what you think. To sign up for our weekly email list and to keep up to date with the latest episodes and publications, you can check us out on the web at georgefox.edu talks. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.